This episode is proudly sponsored by ShakeBay, Canada's easiest way to buy and earn Bitcoin in 10 minutes or less with no deposit or withdrawal fees. It's so easy, even the boomer can do it. Guys, I've personally been using ShakePay for several years and highly recommend them. Their mobile app makes it super easy to buy and sell Bitcoin. All you have to do is e-transfer directly to your ShakePay account and you're ready to go. So head over to shakepay.com or download the mobile app, use the referral code LOONYHOUR and get $30 of free Bitcoin when you sign up. ShakePay gives out free Bitcoin to every user every day just by shaking your phone. They call this the shaking sats feature. It's awesome. I highly encourage you to go check it out. ShakePay has also just launched one of Canada's only Bitcoin cashback prepaid credit cards, which gives users up to 2% Bitcoin cashback on every transaction. If you want to opt out, Canadian dollars and start earning rewards through Bitcoin, go check out ShakePay. Once again, guys, that's shakepay.com. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 51. As always, joined by the three amigos. We've got Rich Diaz at Acorn Macro Consulting and Keith Dicker of Icecap Asset Management. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. We've got Rich, who's back in high school, back in the, back in the locker room. Are you in Portugal right now? Back in the Portuguese high school locker room. I hope I don't get stuffed into one of these lockers but my, by my cousins who are farm boys and they, they're pretty strong. Yeah, back in visiting my mom. Uh, I didn't get to see her over the summer, so she insisted I come over here. And I yeah, thought she was in Montreal. I know, I know, but she's she's a globetrotter. She's a boomer, man. She's got all kinds of cash and nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. So she she just gallivants all over the world, spending her 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 not her hard earned money, and uh, that's it. So I'm here now in Portugal, enjoying myself. Keith knows what that's all about. Keith, what's new? I also have all kinds of cash, but I don't travel anywhere. I just stay here. <laughs> Keith's, uh, Keith, Keith has the only house in uh, Halifax that didn't get impacted by the hurricane. That's right. Yeah. Not I one shingle up, but, was lost. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had a lot of damage here, but, um, you know, it, it, it's a, it's really tough, guys. There's a lot of damage to people's properties. I think there was one soul that was lost over in Newfoundland. I know one town in Newfoundland, I think about 90 families are completely displaced Jeez. right now. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are struggling over here in this part of the country so uh we have that going on so just you know everyone you know always think of other people all the time and uh well you got hurricane yeah you've got hurricane ian obviously uh you know in in florida there and uh what was it i don't know if it was real but there was someone was posting on twitter there that it was like the it was like a shark on the highway I saw that i don't know if that was real or not but that's if that was that's pretty nuts it's pretty What's cool though yeah must be an investment theme in there of some sort maybe today like um and you know and not to you know sort of make fun of the storm but the night before our storm uh mrs Icecap and i actually watched the perfect storm so remember the uh you guys probably don't remember you guys were too young then i've seen right? that movie it's great isn't that mark Wahlberg? yeah 
And Steve is actually I, based on a book. I know you don't read books, but it was based on a book as well. I don't by, know how to uh, read. Yeah, Sebastian Junger. But we watched that movie the night before. And, uh, you know, I think there are some parallels with that and what we have happening today. Because I think this is, I don't remember a couple of weeks ago, I said, wow, this is the most exciting week in the investment world in, in centuries. And here we are two weeks later. And I'm saying, this is even more exciting than it was two weeks. So, you know, let's, you know, use that analogy with the perfect storm because that's that's the kind of guys we are. It, you know, we're, is this we're the deep movie? thinkers. Is that the movie that you watch and you're like ready for like the market to crash? That's that's quite interesting. I'm more of like a big short guy. <laughs> no, I, I don't, don't watch any watch. movies that have a sad ending. I only watch movies that I know have a happy ending. <laughs> I think the big short's got a happy ending. <laughs> Rich's favorite book is uh grade seven basic math. <laughs> Uh, Pick up one one. I think my favorite book yeah. is so I don't know. Um, yeah, okay. probably probably going to be a, a slow podcast this week. Really, not a whole lot to talk about. Not much going on right now. Um, it's mayhem out there, Keith. And this is obviously continues to sort of gear up every single week. And you know, it's funny on the podcast. I think we joked about it last week, which was like every week we come on here and be like, well. You know, something's going to break. You know, it hasn't happened this week, but we're getting closer. We're getting closer. And it looks to me like we finally broke something. It was the Great British Pound. Um, and the uh, you know, yeah. It, I mean, Rich, I don't know if you have any, you know, you're, I mean, you've been living in the UK. So I don't know if you have any frontline thoughts, opinions, but uh, maybe I'll let you sort of unpack that. Wait, Rich. Okay, sure. I mean, you're I don't... In, Rich. You're innocent. You shouldn't feel guilty at all. <laughs> I mean, when I did move there, a certain head of state kicked the bucket right after. So I mean, my mother hasn't stopped letting me think about that. Anyways, okay. So the UK came out with them. So the UK's had a uh, leadership election after Boris Johnson was er- unceremoniously kicked to the curb after lying and lying and lying and being just a general scumbag. Um, and then Liz Truss was um, one of the two. Uh, potential um, uh, conservative party leaders. She ran against Rushi Sunak, who was the chancellor of the exchequer. Anyway, so Liz Truss is okay. Anyway, so she um, came out with a mini budget, um, reduced the tax rate to 40 uh, for the highest income bracket from 45 to 40, 40% to, she wants to cancel a corporate tax increase that was going from 19 to 25, I think. And she wanted to cap some kind of energy prices. All this to say is the market was not impressed. It was not funded at all. Um, the market was not impressed. The pound fell. I think we got to 105, Keith, something, 107 or something was the low. And the gilt, which is the what they call, instead of the Bund in Germany or the Treasury in the US, they call, the, the, um, they call um, UK bonds gilts. Uh, don't ask me what that acronym means. It's just add that to the list of acronyms that I don't remember what they stand for. But anyway, so the guilt uh, soared, the pound fell, which is basically another way of saying there was a run on British assets, so to speak. And um, I think as recently as yesterday, was it that the Bank of England basically had to come in and intervene in the guilt market, basically promised to print unlimited um amounts of pounds in order to buy and the any any gilts that are on the market and basically to halt 
the sell-off in that market. And they had to do that because if I'm not mistaken, it was pension funds that had all kinds of shenanigans, these levered products in order to, you know, gain that incremental sort of return and a bunch of pension bunch. I mean, I don't know exactly how many, but um, a few pension funds were basically going to go bankrupt, belly up. And so that's just a really, really fascinating story. Um, so that's my like little synopsis. I've, I've got a, a history lesson attached to this, bro. I'd like to hear Keith or Steve. Yeah, well, let me quickly chime in there. We've got, uh, so yeah, um, this is from uh, Robert Smith, who um, writes about uh, for the Financial Times. <clears throat> uh, he says, senior banker describing the leveraged unwinding guilt as coming close to triggering, quote, a Lehman moment. Uh, asset manager accused the Bank of England of ignoring calls to intervene sooner. Uh, and so the in the interview, the guy was quoted as, at some point this morning, I was worried this was the beginning of the end, said a senior lo- London-based banker, adding that at one point on Wednesday morning, there were no buyers of long-dated UK guilds. It was not quite a Lehman moment, but it got close. Um, and then he goes on to say, it appears that some players in the market ran out of collateral and dumped guilds. Uh, we were more conservatively positioned and we had enough collateral to meet all of our margin calls. Um, but the Bank of Canada warning that it needed to intervene in the market, otherwise it would seize up. But the bank failed to act until Wednesday and declined to comment. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of things breaking, uh, I mean, to have your country's pension system near almost collapsing um, is really quite something. So, Keith, I would love to hear your, your comments from the, from the financial side. Yeah, yeah. And uh, probably the main thing, uh, just to add to what you guys just described, which is perfect. Um, what, what, what happened in the, uh, the UK bond market, so like for, for the gilts, uh, or the treasury bonds, if you want to call them that, they actually went no bid. So everyone was selling them because they had to raise money, you know, to meet margin requirements and other structures. Uh, the, other, the other thing with pension funds, they, they all, pension funds are a whole bunch of assets. But they try to match a lot of these assets against future liabilities that are coming up. So then, when you have big swings in interest rates, um, you know it can really knock your your liability matching offsides, and that's that's what happened. So when these margin calls were going, it was, they, they weren't margin on the stock market; like they were they were margin on interest rate products and yeah. and swaps and things like that. So they're all selling their most liquid assets, you know, which is supposed to be you know the, the UK Treasury bond. And it just got to a point where there was no bid. So if you think about that, so that's what happened to the Japanese a, a few months back. What's a know, bid, were, Keith? What's a bid? Yeah, yeah. So it was, a bid means you want to buy something. So if, if Rich, you know, he's feeling guilty, so he wants to sell his guilts, he's offering it. That's the offer. That's a real zinger there. I like that one. That's a good one. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think I, I got some pretty good bad jokes, but... That was Anyways, okay. Carry on. Yeah. So, you know, Rich is selling and I want to buy. I'm the, on the bid. But what happened that day in the UK? There was no one on the bid. Nobody was willing to buy, you know, the, the British Treasury bond. So that's when the Bank of England, they had to step in and they had to do the buying. So that's what it was. And I know there was, you know, it's really funny. I, I find, you know, social media, it's, it's great and it gives me a good giggle every now and then. And, you know, it, it was unlimited QE. That's basically what it is. They said, we'll buy enough 
as is needed to stabilize the market, which is unlimited. And some people were arguing, well, it's not unlimited. It's it's yield curve control. It's not QE. And I'm thinking, what the heck? You get all these guys just talking nonsense. But I had some guy on Twitter DMs telling me that it wasn't monetary. It wasn't a monetary policy. It was a fiscal policy update change or something. Like arguing over basically semantics. Like to keep things simple, it was QE. It's essentially unlimited. It's to create financial stability. Anyways, so Keith, continue. But, but so also, but Rich, that's what that's what. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, sorry. What, what did you say last week? You said you you described your old man yelling at the clouds. Yells at, yells at cloud. Yeah, that's from the <laughs> Simpsons. That's very, the it's a classic Simpsons reference. That's really funny. I, I like that. Um, but what's okay, so you have that that happening. So that same morning you wake up. You know, you have the Brits have the bailout. You know, the guilt market. Uh, at the same time, the Koreans announced, you know, they're bailing out their bond and FX markets. So now all of a sudden, and then you, the week before, you had the Japanese, they were trying to bail out their FX and bond market. So at, this, at the same time, you know, again, like it was a sort of perfect storm analogy that we introduced there earlier. You have that the Chinese are desperately trying to, you know, save their, their banking and, and FX market. You have the Japanese doing the same thing. And then the Koreans are making the same announcement. And then out of nowhere, you know, the Brits come out and say, hey, we, we need some help here as well. So, so think right now, you're, you're the Federal Reserve this week. So Powell, he's sitting there at his desk, you know, he's, he's doing whatever. And then the phone rings, you know, it's, it's the Japanese. And they're saying, yeah, we have everything on, on you know, it, it's stabilized here. We're selling all of our treasury bonds to raise us dollars and we're using that you know to buy back yen uh it looks steady but we're, we're still pretty rickety here and powell's like okay then all of a sudden you know his his uh office mate says oh you have the koreans online too and he picks up and he says koreans i haven't talked to the we haven't talked to the koreans since the 50s so he picks up the phone and here's the Koreans saying, yeah, we're having some trouble here as well with, with the currency side. So we have to support our currency just to let you know, because, you know, we are your friend. If, you know, any bombs start the drop, you're welcome to come over on, on our property. Uh, they have that happening. And then all of a sudden there's a call on the third line. He was, who was it now? He's with the Chinese again, just reminding you that they're in trouble. So don't be too aggressive with them. And he's like, Okay, and then the other line rings and they say, hey, it's, it's the Europeans on line five or four. I don't know which one we're on now. And of course, Powell responds, the Europeans, which one? And he said, it's the Germans. And he said, oh, thank God it's not the French. And uh, I'm sure that's a joke in there somewhere. You guys don't laugh at those. Somebody, that was there's funny. probably one <laughs> listener that might be laughing right now. You just need to research, you know, uh, European war history and jokes on the French. Okay. Anyways, now the Germans are saying, hey, you know, we're in trouble because bond yields are starting to rise and the Italian yields are starting to rise. And finally, policy, my God, can it get any worse than this? And sure enough, you know, line six lights up and here are the Brits saying, hey, we have to bail out, you know, our, our bond market today. So... Wait, everything is the bond market they bailed out the pension funds no they had to buy the bond market to bail right, out but, the pension funds right right okay, okay. yeah we're so that allowed more semantics here no no we're not no we're in school rich take some notes <laughs> well no i have some i they, think speaking of notes speaking of school speaking of uh notes i have a history lesson for everybody 
So this is actually not the first uh, type of time this, is, this type of thing has happened with pension funds specifically. So nothing is new, but what has been forgotten, to quote Marie Antoinette. Um, you know, the, the, in 1994, um, there was an uh, Orange County, which is in California, some of you may know, there's, there was a pension and investment fund, I think a pension fund, um, and it was run by a not particularly qualified guy, but he was running this pension fund for the Orange County, um, sort of the all the people who work there, etc. Just like a normal pension fund, whatever. And he had leveraged positions. So this Treasury Secretary basically took on massive leveraged positions to improve the returns on the pension pool, pension pot that he was running. And he grew, um, and you'll note it, you'll remember that before 1994, interest rates were falling. And so as the interest rates were falling, he took on more and more leverage. And he was renowned within this pension community for doing, having such great returns to the point where other counties that were neighboring counties got wind of this guy and wanted, were like basically banging down his door to give them their money in order for them to run it. So anyways, all this to say is, Towards the end of 1994, or what have you, they, the Federal Reserve started to uh, start a series of in interest rate hikes, and lo and behold, the these levered positions went from being extremely profitable to um, basically being wiped out to the point where I think the county declared the entire county, Orange County, declared bankruptcy. Um, and to, had to liquidate basically all their positions. I think this guy ended up spending only about an, a year in jail or what have you. But yeah, it's just, I mean, this is not the first time this is this kind of thing has happened. It probably won't, it certainly won't be the last, but I just thought that was uh, sort of an interesting little history lesson for some of us who might not, might not have been old enough to, to remember. Well, I was old enough back then. I was working, <laughs> of course. And didn't they you make a TV say. series about that called The OC? Is that what that was about? Oh, no, that's no, no, that, that's no. about kids with iPhones. So. <clears throat> but Keith, okay. is this not like an important like for you? Is this not like an important like signal that like the fact that things are getting so bad that they went back to basically the, the typical playbook, which is print, print money, print the yeah, money, step in. And, and like, like I said, you said, you know, the UK is doing it, you know, uh, Korea is doing it now, obviously the BOJ, but nobody seems to care about them because they've been doing it forever and they've never stopped. Um, and, and, and yeah, the, it just keeps, keeps kind of going on and on. Like it's, to me, it was a very important signal more or less. So again, whether this is temporary or not, to me, it, it was just, the, the old playbook, which people said, you know, you can't, you can't do QE with inflation at 10%, but they did. Yeah. So this is extraordinary. I mean, I, I know we can use that word a lot, shocking, astonishing, whatever you want to use, old man yelling at the clouds, but this has never happened in, in anyone's career before. Like this, this is highly unusual. Like the whole Orange County situation, like that was isolated to one small Part of the market they were they were running interest rate swaps so they were you know re receiving fix and had to pay out variable you know so when rates went up that's when they went under with, with the leverage attached to it uh but but again right now you if you're an investment manager and you're not excited about what's happening today you, you shouldn't you don't belong in the industry a again to have 
everyone in the world to have risk synchronized to this same degree. And again, I know there's a big discussion right now between you know, the developed world versus developing world. And you know, the developing world, man, they, you know, they must be chuckling right now. Because you know, as you see, that's you know, those are the guys that are causing everything trouble everywhere else. But to have the Japanese and you know, the Koreans are also in the developed world these days. And but to have Britain being the really the first one to break. I mean, that is, again, it's it's an unbelievable event. And I know like the trading day, as the trading went on, like it went to a risk on trading day. So the dollar sold off and everything else recovered quickly. Um, you know, it, it's our view. This is, this is just a bit of a, a relief rally here. And, um, you know, we'd always joke, this is a Thursday recording. You'll watch this on Friday, but... Friday, if you're watching this today, is September the 30th, so it's quarter rent, and there's a lot of things that happen at quarter rent people are not familiar with, um, if you're not inside the industry, but you know, there's, there's a lot of things taking place right now, and I suspect on Monday slash Tuesday, when things get back, the start of Q4, uh, you, you're going to see some continuation again, but nothing has been fixed right now. We continue to go down this path where and everything is broken. How do they fix it? What do they do? And I suspect the next step, what will happen, one of the American allies, uh, they're going to announce that, you know, they turned the swap line back on with, with the U.S. Fed again, because everyone is just just desperate for U.S. dollars. You know, they want that. Um, but yeah, but, you know, there she was. And um, this is, it, it's, we continue to go to that space that's going to, make a lot of people uncomfortable if they're not prepared for it. And um, that's where we're going. What do you got, Rich? So, well, I was going to say, I'm excited for a different reason. So I'm, I'm, you know, less, I don't, I'm less into the investment world and more into the macro and economics and history world. And I think what I'm really enjoying is for the first time in a long time, we're having the rise of real interest rates. And a lot of the products, strategies, investments, stocks, bonds, real estate stuff that made a lot of sense in a world with negative real interest rates is not going to make any sense whatsoever in a world with real interest rates that are positive. So just to remind everybody, uh, real interest rates are just, you know, interest rate, however you want to calculate it. Uh, minus some kind of inflation, again, however you want to calculate it. And, you know, whether you look at break-evens relative to the 10-year bond yield, which is now at, a, I think, a four or five-year high. I mean, you, you, or sorry, sorry, a two-year high on its way to crack a four-year high because the way the chart looks like. But, you know, for, when you have a rise in, when you have a decline in real interest rates, when you have real interest rates that are negative, Lots of negative yielding assets make sense. Leverage positions make sense. Long duration assets that provide no cash flow that are speculative investment make sense. You think of the tech sector, um, or you think of the you know think think of like housing speculation that starts to manifest itself. You know these pension funds that have leveraged themselves and have taken on these risky strategies make sense. But when real interest rates rise. You know, it exposes a lot of this financial market funny business. And so for me, that's why I'm, you know, I mean, not to, I shouldn't enjoy it too, too much because these are real people's lives and this is real money at risk. But for me, it's, it's about freaking time that we have real interest rates that are positive. And I, my hope, and again, forgive me if I'm an optimist, but my hope is that central bankers are 
have, you know, are have the, let's say the intestinal fortitude to keep real interest rates high and positive, and to break something because I think, you know, a lot of these issues with inequality and a lot of this populist bullshit, in my view, is a function of real interest rates. But I guess that's a conversation for a different day. But that's why I'm, I'm really enjoying that. So, so the real interesting thing right now is, um, so in the investment world, you always price a market off of something else. And the, and the base or the benchmark that's used to price every single asset in the world is, is really the bond market. So using the treasury market in the US or your own local you know, government bond market, wherever you are, which is really a spread off the American market as well. But, but now we're into the situation where the price of these benchmark interest rate markets, like, they don't exist anymore. So what's the real price for, uh, you know, the 10-year gilt? Nobody knows. What's the price of it in Japan? <laughs> Nobody knows. You know, in, what is it in the U.S.? We might think we know. What is it in Italy? Again, like, you know, that's, I think now we're up to, are we at 5% now for the Italian 10-year? I think we are. And, uh, you know, that could be, so that could double the 10 very quickly because the Italians had an election which is another fantastic story, by the way. So, I mean, so the story with, with the Italian election, you know, on, on basically on election day, the president of the EU, is it Vanderlei? Right. Or, or, Ursula, Ursula something, no? It's Vanderlei, right? She's part of the Vanderlei yeah, Industries Ursula. Empire. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know she was part of the empire, but I should have assumed that. Yeah, her family established Vanderlei Industries. And... Um, Anyway, so she is an unelected official. And here she is telling the Italians on what they should do with their election. So you should not elect these guys and, and whatever. And, and of course, you know, in the EU's eyes, the wrong party won or the wrong coalition won. And, you know, they quickly come out and, and they're threatening them. But it, again, it's just another example where, you know, we have all these things that are offsides in the world. And I keep looking around like, who wants peace? Who wants to sort things out? Get everyone together in, in the room and have a pint or a coffee, whatever, and figure things out. Like even this morning, I see like the South Koreans made an announcement, you know, if the North Koreans fire one more missile over us, you know, we're going to scream at the clouds again, you know, something like that. Um, but anyway, the, the Italian election should really pop up because the Italians now, they're going to, you know, and by the way, the party that won you know, they, they basically, uh, I don't know the lady's name who won. And, um, but she had some, you know, some very aggressive rhetoric towards the EU and especially the French and, uh, you know, tell them to feck off basically. And, uh, and at any moment now, this is what, this is what happens. So it, in Brussels and Frankfurt, they're getting together and they say, hey, have you noticed how the Italians, they just told us to screw off. And uh, they're like, yeah, we noticed that. He said, what do you think we should do? He said, yeah, let's, let's pull off the Berlusconi trick again. <clears throat> so for people I don't remember, Berlusconi was the uh, prime minister of Italy back, I think it was 12, guys, 2012. And um, so basically the Italian bond market went from like four to six to 12 overnight. And he refused to relent. He wanted to pull the Italians out of the Eurozone. And, you know, Frankfurt and Brussels got together and they just starved them. Basically, they said, we won't give you any more money. So do not be surprised to see the Italian tenure 
all of a sudden go from five to seven to 10 or something very quickly. And it's simply a function of Brussels and Frankfurt, just putting the squeeze on the Italian to tell them to, you know, get back in line. And uh, that's, that's happening as well. And again, this is great for markets. It's giving you a great opportunity. So to grow how, how your you, wealth. Yeah, how do you see this shaping up here now? Obviously with, with, the stress is clearly emerging, uh, you know, plain as day, obviously, you know, not again, not overly surprising given where global debt to GDP is and, you know, um, rapidly rising, surging interest rates and how that was going to play out. It was really just a matter of time. Um, but now, now that we're seeing things actually quote unquote breaking, Keith, how do you see this? Cause like, I, I again, I, I, I find it difficult to see the fed pivoting but if you continue on this path things are just going to get really messy so is this is this something where the fed just ignores their counterparties and basically plunges you know the global economy into recession or, or creates some sort of crisis in the name of fighting inflation or do they slowly start to abandon this inflation fight what's your what's your take yeah they're going to do a bit of both so for example right now in so now in um in in the uk and and eurozone for example you know they're raising rates and doing qe at the same time so in in the academia world that makes no sense at all you know you either you're providing stimulus or you're not. And, and they're, they're doing both. So what I suspect what the Fed will have to do, and, and I mean, what's what the Fed will do, they'll either go in behind the scenes, which is, which is what I suspect what happened uh, when the Brits got in trouble there on, on Wednesday. Um, you know, they'll, they'll help, you know, the Europeans are their friends. Like they'll help out the Europeans, they'll do that. Or they'll still announce, hey, the swap line is open. And they're always open, by the way. We have to officially ask, you know, the phone rings, hey, can we draw money down, they'll say, yeah, of, of course you can, you're our friend. So you can see them providing dollars to the world at the same time, continuing to raise rates. I, I don't think they're gonna back off on raising rates and, unless something very dramatic happens. Because like for, uh, for you know, Rich will share with like in, in the economic world, like there's nothing broken yet. I mean, employment is okay. You know, stole growth my, might stole be- Stole my thunder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, things, my view is like, I, I'm really forward looking all the time and I see the data is getting weaker and weaker, but it's not broken yet. Like that hasn't happened. And people say, well, you know, I, I keep saying like the most dangerous private company in the world or non-public, like non-government entity is HSBC. So if you see them really running into problems, nothing that that'll be another cue. But again, I think the Fed will continue on the path. The same with the Bank of Canada. I mean, data in Canada is, is getting weaker. Of course, we know that. You know, a lot of people are, are struggling in a number of different ways, but it's still not enough. I mean, the Bank of Canada on their, uh, I, I love now they have a Twitter feed and they're actually trying to be active with it. And um, the funny thing is, if you're on Twitter, you had to have, you know, you had to be witty, of course, right? So that's why, you know, IceCap is very successful and, you know, Rich is struggling a bit. But, uh, <laughs> But the Bank of Canada, that like uh, you know, the, the governor came out today with a little video basically saying, no, he's mocking you. He's saying, you know what? We're gonna continue to raise rates no matter what. And that's it. So you have to expect that's where 
to go and to go. Yeah, they're pot committed to this. I it's like, well, I mean, but wait a second, they're pot committed to something that I think again, I, I stress, I think is a net benefit for society. It is not good to maintain interest rates that are negative below the rate of inflation in perpetuity. That is that only helps rich asset owners. So you and Keith, Steve, that's the only people that helps. I think the idea that we should just keep interest rates below inflation forever and that at any time we raise them, we should just immediately back off because some rich jerk feels a little bit of pain, I think is is really, really, really bad. Again, we've talked about this before. There's an emphasis on income inequality. I think that that is a, that's a red herring. It should be about asset inequality. And the only people who majorly, majorly benefit from sustained negative real interest rates are people who are asset rich. And it's frankly, it's from an economics standpoint, from a productivity growth standpoint, from a avoiding a bloody revolution standpoint, it's time that those asset holders feel pain. And I think the way that, and, and not to mention, we talked about this as well, real interest rates are a signal, a market signal. Um, one of the reasons why um, I think that Canada has sh such shit productivity growth is because we've kept real interest rates negative for 10 or 11 or 12 years. And the only way to make money in this country, or in the country I used to live in anyway, is to invest in real estate rather than manufacturing or industry or go get a real job or be a tradesman or whatever. And so I, I think you know, although there is pain, I, and then although this, you know, this might be painful in some financial markets, on the whole, we should absolutely not be afraid of real interest rates that are positive, that are solidly in positive territory, and that they are kept there for a long time, because that's what most of our history has been. From 1970, all the way until like 2010, real interest rates in Canada were positive. And this idea that we just if the world will crumble if they go back there after being 10 years in negative territory, I just reject that on its face. But I would also so, just add well, okay, I'm like, no, no, I want to I want to push back because I actually I agree basically with, with everything that you've said. I'm just trying to look at it like strictly from like what I think will what I want to happen or what I think what they will do basically. I I I I'm struck. I mean, Keith, maybe you can chime in here, but like with debt at these levels, like how do you get the debt to GDP lower? Like, so it's either you either have to go through this like very, very painful debt deleveraging, which is, you know, mass foreclosures, bankruptcies, insolvencies, unemployment goes up. Like, does that not lead you or basically yeah, or you somewhat inflated away or you do some, some sort of new monetary regime? uh some sort of great you know Bretton Woods 2.0 like there's there's got to be there has to be like a real resolve here and I don't think given politics and society today nobody seems to want to go through any sort of pain we have inflation today and governments are simply just printing money and mailing people checks as opposed to going through the pain which is like in order to get inflation down we have to have people people need to suffer a bit but like nobody wants to go through the pain and I just look at the debt levels today I just don't see how, you know, sustainably people are going to get through positive real rates without, again, mass foreclosures, job losses. And I think it looks like a Great Depression 2.0, which no maybe lunch, maybe Steve. we need to go through that. I don't know. But Steve, there's no free lunch. I mean, the, the, the problem 
with the way that people have couched this and framed this this discussion is this idea that if you keep interest rates low forever, then everything's great and there's no negatives. And if no, you raise basically them, just kick it's the only can. downside. You just but basically I, are I, kicking the can down the road further right. and further. I mean, and in, in our introduction, I think, you know, one of the, the, the quote that I, you know, you guys have better quotes, but mine's okay too, which is this idea that the, the dirty little secret is that no one's going to get paid. These bonds are not worthless, but the bonds are worth 60 cents in the dollar, 80 cents in the dollar. I mean, bonds have, bond returns are minus 20%. I just don't think you're going to recover. And I think it's the bondholders, not the equity holders over the long term that are really going to take this in the teeth. You know, when you say debt to GDP is at X amount and that needs to come down, it's a haircut for the bondholders. Um, at least equity holders have a claim on the future assets or on, you know, IP or future sales growth. You can work with margins. You know, there's, there's in, in theory, dividends are paid in real terms, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the bondholders that are going to get smoked. It's the pension funds. It's all it's. And then, so for me, I, that's the part where I just, someone somewhere at some point needs to feel pain. <laughs> right. I, yeah. I, I just okay. don't, so Keith, I don't know. Now, what, we're, what, just what, what are your now we're just negotiating. Now we're just horse. Now we're just negotiating on who anyway. Sorry, Keith, go ahead. I just like listening to you and you young guys talk about, stuff sometimes and rich you rich you actually are right the bonds are worth less so that is right um was that, was that a joke man <laughs> that was yeah you said they're bonds. one for three that's okay. you said they're not worthless i said they're worth uh, less uh, yeah um okay. even better i reject your rejection see the challenge here is that you're not going to be able like we are the world you're not going to be able to gradually transition from you know, negative real rates to positive real rates. And, you know, everyone is happily holding hands, having a cappuccino right, and a biscotti, right? That, that ain't going to happen. So something, you know, a bit bad happens along that journey. And that's the journey we're, we're taking right now. And governments will always look to, hey, we got to, you know, blame someone. So they're always going to blame the wealthy. So, for example, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but uh, in, in Spain yesterday, they announced that they're going to have a wealth tax on um, residents or Spanish taxpayers. I don't know how they'll do it. Yeah, with, with 3 million euro in assets. Okay, not income, assets. There's no an asset test. Um, and I don't know what the rate's going to be, but the IMF came out. Uh, this was probably in 2011 or 12 or 13. They came out with their recommendation that the world back then they apply a, a one-time 10% wealth tax on everyone around the world. You know, there would have been an exclusion up to a certain level. And by doing that, they said that would help, and that would then be applied to global debt. And they said that would basically reduce the debt, you know, from you know, way up here to way up there just a little bit. So this whole idea of a wealth tax has been tossed around now for quite some time. And, and you're gradually starting to see it being introduced. But, but Spain announced it. And I fully expect in Canada that we continue with the current political um, coalition that we have. That is absolutely coming up next because they're not going to raise taxes on, on lower income households. Um, they will raise it on corporations, but the easiest one to get political points for, especially with that election coming up at some point, you know, they're going to float the idea of a, of a wealth tax. 
And uh, if you do it on an asset base, it means, hey, you include your house and everything on it. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous because how do you value the house for starters? And, you know, you heard the, the, the term before the phrase, you know, house rich, you know, cash poor. So what do you do? You have to sell your property to, to pay the tax and you have all these things going on. But, you know, but, but again, you know, rich is right. They're policymakers to playing with a specific book. They know what they have now. It doesn't work. So they're, you know, very quickly and dramatically trying to right the ship. And Steve, you're also right in that, you know, we have all this debt out there. How are they going to fix it? Um, and there's a pretty easy solution for it. And uh, anyone in Ottawa listening, give me a call and I'll sort it out for you for a fee, of course. But um, but there there are solutions out there for these things. I mean, you're basically going to do a debt equity swap. I mean, that, that's what it's going to be. And because um, one, one thing about, you know, the developed world, you know, the debt loads are enormous, of course, but the assets that governments own it's enormous like there's, there's a lot of easy ways to fix this but you can only fix it if, if if there's a crash first or a crisis first otherwise you know how are you going to convince everyone to turn in their canadian federal government bonds bonds you know in exchange for a, a, a share of you know federal lands or, or something like that but that's where we're going right there's no easy way out we're headed in that direction and along the way, some markets will do great, other ones not so great. You know, it'll give us a lot of things to talk about. And uh, anyway, I, I think it's, again, I think this path is easy to see. And we just have to be prepared you know, to go down that way. Well, speaking but, of which, there's been a lot more discussions and trial balloons being floated out there. Um, I know we've talked about it before, but central bank digital currencies are definitely... Oh, no coming and and again not this not to be conspiratorial they are coming i don't know the exact role that they're going to play but it certainly gives you know if you're looking at you know direct transfers to households and and trying to influence economic behaviors i mean it's one way to do it so uh yeah i'd be very very curious but yeah this is something rich you know um it seems to me is going to be very Difficult to resolve. It will get resolved one way or another. I think policymakers, to me, are continuing to try to buy themselves time uh, to try to sort this thing out. So yeah, it'll be very interesting to see. But um, yeah, I don't know if we like switching gears here, but coming back to the uh, what the Canada front, um, you know, getting you know overlaying that with interest rates and everything that's happening. Uh, economic growth continues to slow to Rich's point, you know, financial markets might be breaking, but that hasn't yet transferred over to economic pain or, or sort of in the economic data, so to speak, in terms of, you know, job losses and whatnot. Um, but Rich, I think, what did we have? We had an update, I think, today from not only uh, Canada's GDP, but I think we had the US as well, did we not? Oh, my goodness, you caught me off guard. I don't know anything about the Canadian GDP number because I usually ignore the monthly data. I was more focused on the population growth thing, <laughs> but um, you blew but, yeah, it. I blew Keith. it. I blew it. Oh man, that's a snoozer. That yeah, was a bit of a snoozer. Anyways, Canada's <laughs> no, GDP. no, no, no. But Rich has a go? good point. Yeah, Rich has a good point though about population growth and the effect on 
on GDP. What, what do you share that with us? Okay. Right? So anyways, I'll chime in. Canada's GDP growth was 0.1%. It's basically been like flat to like, it's basically, we're essentially at no growth. Like, so we're not technically in recession where GDP is declining. Uh, but, but growth is basically uh, more or less at zero. Um, but uh, massive, massive population growth. Rich, if you want to jump into those numbers uh, and sort of explain how that is probably potentially could end up masking a recession in Canada. Well, it's definitely masking. I mean, there's different ways to calculate GDP. Again, GDP is gross domestic product. It's, um, it's a flawed but extremely useful way of measuring the productive capacity of an economy. There are different ways to um, to calculate it. Um, there's something called the income approach, which is you know it's like how literally how much quote unquote net like income each of the sectors might get, whether it's wages, corporate profits, interest, um, you know income um, you know to the government or whatever. Or sorry, in, indirect taxes and direct taxes. There's the expenditure approach, which is the one that we're all sort of more familiar with, which is like consumption, investment government expenditure and net exports yes i actually got that right and then and then there's another and then there's different ways there's another way to calculate it um which is basically taking the number uh and then once you get that so you then, then you take the population growth and then you have sort of the productivity growth so you can or like how productive each person in your economy is times the number of people you have and then you get through that, you can calculate your GDP. And then obviously, and so, but this is what's so crazy about this GDP number that came out and it was basically flat in Canada is that Canada just recorded the highest population growth in 55 years. So I think it was Q2, 1967. Someone will correct me if I've screwed that up. And it was 1.8% year on year growth, which if you so just to keep that in mind, so our GDP grew by 0.1%, right? Month on month, if I'm not mistaken. So basically Correct. it was flat. And we've had so let's just annualize that figure, which is a bit naughty, but let's just do it anyway. So you know, you basically have you know just under one percent growth for your GDP, and yet we've had 1.8% GDP growth year on year. So what that tells you is that we are already, if it wasn't for the fact that we're letting basically anybody with a pulse into this country, um, we would already be in a, in a recession. I mean, so, so which is, is wild. So just to give you an idea, you know, there was an in, in, in increase of, there was 284,000, uh, almost 285,000 people who immigrated to Canada, oh, sorry, who the Canadian's population growth grew by 285,000 the lion's share of which was naturally immigration because we know our birth rates are, are basically abysmal in Canada. And so it's just actually an incredible sort of, you know, like, I don't know if lie is the right word, but like an obfuscation, let's say. It's an incredible obfuscation to suggest that Canada's GDP growth was, again, generously flat, slightly up, when really you've had an incredible amount of population growth. Now, that's not to say population growth isn't good. There are countries like Japan whose population growth is shrinking. That's not great. Germany used to have terrible demographics. That's not necessarily great either. But make no mistake, this is not a great number that came out. And if it wasn't for the express, you know, desire to basically just, you know, pack, you know, just basically invite anyone and everyone, I mean, Canada would already be, in my view, in, in a recession. And I think it's just a fascinating 
thing to remember when you're looking at these numbers to sort of remember how they're built, where it comes from. And so there's my little, there's my little no, piece so on that. So 300,000 people came in, right? Well, I mean, I mean, there were some births in Canada, obviously, but okay. the, 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 the vast majority of it. And then one left. So, so 94.5% of the growth was immigration. And one left. <laughs> and one left. Yeah. One left. Oh my god! Um, so uh, one just, more point though on on the GDP though. Uh, yeah. The, the, so the number that came out, everyone, is for July. So it's the first right. month of the quarter. Right. So you know we, we are finishing you know Q three now um, on Friday. So uh, and again from our investment point of view, like the last three months, it's been zero point one and point one. So it you know there's a lot not a lot of momentum kicking in here and then we would look at other you know data points around the world you know whether it's the americans or europeans and so forth you know, it's also pretty sluggish as well um the american gdp number that came out today that was the final the third revision to q2 for the americans uh which did confirm that it was a negative number so third, uh, third revision yeah, yeah, they, they revise it three times. They do more so. more than that. They'll, they'll revise it in a couple of years too. They always yeah, like five years later, they actually go back and they have. I wonder so whose job that is. A very very smart person. Uh, we'll give them credit. What does he do? He just sits down and goes through all the receipts, or what? No, he's a PhD in econometrics. They they model it and then they then they they adjust the models afterwards and stuff. They so they I mean, like a lot of them I have just, glasses. I just nerded out on you guys. That yeah, sounds no. horrible. But a lot of them have like glasses and a white shirt and a blue tie yeah, and they sit tie, in a locker yeah. room. That's what they look like. Yeah. To, yeah. to Rich's point, though, on the, you know, immigration basically masking, you know, like a recession or an economic contraction, right? Like that's why it's, it's really best to look at it from a GDP per capita uh, perspective, right? Like if, if basically if you want to ask like, you know, is your life improving? is your lifestyle improving economically or, or is it getting slightly worse? I mean, if you look at GDP per capita, I'd imagine rich, it's probably declining. I think it pro I haven't checked this one, but we'll check and we can get back to you guys next week. But I mean, listen, immigration is not bad. My parents are immigrants. They're very grateful. They worked yeah. really hard and paid lots of taxes. It's not, that's not the point. The point is not a, an indictment on immigration. The point is when it's just, it's to educate people and, and give them context. So when they look at these numbers, they understand that the only thing that matters in life is productivity growth. And another way of saying productivity growth, Steve, is what exactly the way you said it, which is GDP per capita. That is what matters. Everything else is just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, basically. So let me, let me walk you through a scenario here. Um, I remain quite bearish on on canadian housing for obvious reasons as rich talked about you know positive real interest rates reprice a lot of assets and particularly highly levered assets um so that continues but when you've got this unbelievable immigration that's coming into the country and i can all i can tell you is like and this is this is not my opinion this is factually what's happening is developers are doing what makes sense and they are hammering the brakes on new development and construction because the way that the system works here and particularly in like Vancouver and Toronto, which is your two major urban centers is that developers, when you're building, let's say a high rise tower, any, any thing, any basically decent sized project. Okay. 10 townhouses, three story wood frame building doesn't matter. 
when you go to get construction financing, which is all these big developers that do, or even small, medium-sized developers, everybody does. When you go to get financing from a lender, they almost, well, not almost always, they always want to see free construction sales. So they want to say, okay, how do we mitigate our risk as the lender here? And so they'll say, well, we typically want, on average, they'll typically want to see about 60% of the building, 60 to 70, depending on what kind of developer you are. They want to see 60% of the units pre-sold um, to buyers. So that way the deposits have been received. They know that at least 60% of the building has been sold. They feel comfortable to lend that money. So the developers go, well, I can't, if they can't hit 60% sales targets, or if they feel that, okay, I'm going to launch a project and I'm not necessarily sure the market's going to pay the price that I need to make this project economically feasible because rates are up and they can no longer afford these prices. They hit pause, right? Like you're not going to go through the process of like doing a pre-sale launch, hiring your staff, building out the presentation center, spending all the money on Facebook advertising, bench stop ads, newspaper ads, to, to then spend all that money and realize, oh my gosh, you didn't even hit 60%. You only could sell 40%. So what happens is developers are shelving a lot of these projects right now. Um, and the banks are obviously getting tighter and tightening on their pre-sale requirements. So just kind of understand that's kind of how the, 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 the train or the system works in Canada that this will be a lag time, right? So the stuff that's already under construction is going to come and it's going to obviously top up some of the housing that's available. But if you look, you know, if you're projecting three to four years down the road, that's kind of when this will sort of emerge itself as a problem. So again, that's not to say there's an immediate turn in housing, but I think when you look three, four years down the road with immigration roughly at these levels or even close to these levels, you're going to continue to see housing crises, shortages, uh, in my opinion. What about rents? I mean, I think that's the same thing, right? So you can say like, oh, the resale market's weak, but like at the end of the day, it's like, well, rents are still going up, which indicates to me that you don't have an oversupply. If, if you had an oversupply of housing, rents would be flat to down, which, hey, in Calgary for the last five years, they've been flat to down. Because it's very, very easy to build in Calgary, very little uh, permit approval times, tons of land. They can just sprawl out and, and they build. Uh, but in, in these major centers in Vancouver and Toronto, where there's so much political resistance, it becomes extremely difficult to get projects approved and built. And I think, as we know, most of the immigration uh, in Canada is, is flocking into these, um, into Vancouver and Toronto, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how I look at it, basically. Um, interestingly enough, actually on my thesis, not to uh, bore you guys to death here, but um, so Alberta actually had, I think, one of the strongest net migrations um, for young, and it's particularly for young people. If you look at the charts, uh, net migration to Alberta by age uh, was explosive. So you're basically seeing a lot of sort of 20 to 30 year olds um, leaving some of these more expensive cities and actually going into Alberta, which is actually a complete reversal from the last five years. So very, very interesting, which kind of mimics somewhat, I think of the patterns that we've seen in the U S right. Which is people leaving these very expensive high tax states and going into like the Sun Belt and Texas and, and whatnot. Uh, so cost of living crisis obviously is, is creating migration. Steve or, and or rich, have you guys seen the, uh... Current data on provincial 
population growth? Like is Alberta booming and maybe BC yeah. and Ontario are not growing as quickly? BC is actually still doing quite well. Uh, Ontario's is definitely taking a hit. Uh, to be honest, I am, I, I, I'm still surprised that BC does as well as it does, given the cost of living here. I mean, obviously beautiful British Columbia. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I guess people, people actually, it's funny. I was actually just on my street here, you know, walking the dog and this guy comes up and he's like, Hey, I watch your podcast. You know, you live on the street kind of thing. And, uh, I was just chatting with him and he, he, he actually had migrated from here uh, a couple of years ago to Saskatoon. And, um, so I chatting more and more people. He's like, yeah, you know what? He's like, I gave up like a five bedroom house, three car garage. Uh, and he's like, now I'm renting like, you know, a condo here in the city and at, not at a cheap price. So people surprisingly are still giving up sort of standard of living, I suppose, or, or larger houses to, to come to BC. Um, well, I've actually got the data in front of me because this is what I do and I love charts. Um, so the, the, the pop, the, so the data goes up is monthly data and goes up to June, end of June. And PEI with its all 200,000 people has had a population growth of 3%, which in just, I know it doesn't sound like a lot is population terms is an incredible amount, num incredible number. Nova Scotia is second with roughly two and a quarter. British Columbia is third with 2%, almost exactly year on year population growth. And then you got New Brunswick and then Ontario, which is uh, one, two, three, four, five in fifth place with just over 1.5%. So, so I was talking uh, about, yeah, basically so BC, net. which is a huge, which is the population of BC is 5.3 million to have a population growth of 2% is still significant is, is quite a number. Yeah. And that number I was talking about for about Alberta, for example, is I believe it was a, a interprovincial migration. Yes, so people, that's right. people leaving one province and that's what that's we're right. kind of seeing in the data is people are leaving, for example, Ontario and going to PEI or whatever that's more affordable, particularly during the pandemic. But again, you still have these newcomers that are coming in here from various parts of the world flooding into Canada. Um, and again, I think most of them come to where is the economic opportunity? Yeah, the cost of living is extremely high. But if you're going to go get like a, you know, a half decent job, it's it's the opportunity is in, you know, in the GTA and, and in Vancouver and in these large major metropolitan cities. There she was. There she was. So... That's enough about Canada, though. What a boring country. Um, oh no, yeah. arrive, Ken. We I can't believe oh. they're ah. they they're ending. We have to do it. We have to talk about it. The most important, best-rated app on the web is no longer. I was very sad to hear about this. Yeah, we might actually have a hope now of surpassing them. <laughs> no, 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 no yet. So, anyways, yeah. Obviously, I think everyone here is listening to this pod is probably well in tune, but the. The federal mask and quarantine and vaccine stuff, I guess, for, for air travel and whatnot is is going away uh, for October 1st, I believe it is. So the Arrive Can app is no longer necessary. So we, we might finally win one here at the Looney Hour. <laughs> I think, though, you know, that, I think that's a good example. And this is what I believe. If you disbelieve it, then that's you're just wrong. But um <laughs> I think that, you know, politically now with, with Polyev, you know, leading the, uh, the, the blue shirt guys, uh, you, as I think Rich, sorry, Steve, you mentioned this no, it was last Rich. time. 
Rich, okay. Uh, last Good call, time, Rich. You, you're going to start seeing, um, you know, the, the red and orange shirt guys start trying to swing a bit more back to center. And I think that's one of the first steps with it. Or if not, it's just it's a lot of irony attached to it. That's it. Rich, that was actually a really good call. Um, when you said that, I was kind of like, ah, I don't know, I'm pretty skeptical. But like the moves that we've seen from the federal government over the last several weeks, really since that call, maybe they're listening to this pod. Um, I think they, I think they are because they coughed. I got, I think one of our, one of our rants was like almost verbatim ripped off by a certain political leader. <laughs> Everything, yeah. Uh, There's been a lot of changes at the at the federal level in the last couple. No, I would of weeks. never presume to be that popular or important, but it, it was a nice coincidence. Was it? Oh, it was the gun. It was a tweet with the bad jokes, right? So it was me. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely that. Yeah, yeah. What else we got? What else are we looking at? I, I actually, I want to bring one more point up to um, to sort of touch. And this is an ongoing debate, and there's people again that are going to hate this, but. Um, you know, we talk about Canada's basically flat GDP growth. I mean, you can go across, you know, the, the world, right? Is GDP is weakening. Um, you know, obviously interest rates are going up. Things in the financial markets are starting to break. And that's going to slowly trickle through into the rest of the economy. I think we're seeing more and more signs that cpi inflation is going to come down maybe quicker than people want to believe again uh, i know people don't like that that view but um this is from our good buddy there keith from retest jane who quoted the macro strategy partnership uh their their note there it says the canadian three-month annualized cpi has already fallen to 1.86 percent that's below the 2% midpoint of the central bank's target rate. So again, I know it's just a three-month annualized, not perfect, but that's showing us at 1.86. Uh, you know, we're seeing up various commodities all coming off uh, quite drastically from their peaks earlier this year. Uh, we're, I've got this great follow, by the way, if you're looking for... Uh, data on on freight rates and because obviously you know sh shipping and freight rates are basically an indicator of global demand you know shipping goods across the world uh so craig fuller is a great follow on twitter uh his quote he says i've never seen freight rates drop as fast as they are on the ocean market right now of course a lot of their pricing is back down to early 2021 levels so you know the the, the stories of freight rates 10xing you know during the height of the pandemic those have all basically retraced back to to what they were pre-pandemic, and obviously, like I said, commodity prices. Uh, to me, that I just think, Keith. I don't know, Rich. I don't know if you guys have any comments, but to me, I think central banks are doing their job, which is they are raising rates so aggressively that demand is getting slaughtered, and I think that is ultimately bringing down inflation, which is their target which is their goal. So mission accomplished, I suppose. Well, I wouldn't be that congratulatory for them. I, I think a lot of things, <laughs> well, it's a complicated global economy. Um, it, it is happening, but let, let's be clear though, but the, the Americans as well as the Canadians, and they said, you know, we're going to keep raising rates just because it comes down lower. It doesn't mean we're going to stop. Because remember, we've had this discussion now not just us but the market maybe three times now over the last month about you know the, this this infamous pivot that that's going to happen 
and they keep coming out and said, guys, you're not listening to us. You know, was it, who was it? Was it Clinton or uh, Bush that said, read my lips that time? Well, you guys were too young. to. I think it was George Bush. Oh, no, no, it was Clinton when he said I did not have sexual relations with that. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so anyway, I think you have the central bank are saying, guys, like we're, we're not we're not going to do that. So it, it sort of ties into now. So we have the Bank of Canada coming out on October 26th. So, you know, roughly a month from now. And um, so, so right now we're at three and a quarter in Canada and the market is pricing in another 75 basis points. And uh, that's been up as high as 100. And now it's back down to 75 again. So um, it's is the, you know, is the market pricing seventy five now in October. Uh, no, fifty for October, and then another twenty five either okay. Dece or, or January coming up, and so this is the big game, right? The market is now starting to price in. Hey, we're we're now going to peak with rates, and again, that doesn't mean they're going to start cutting right away because it usually takes about eight to ten months before. You know, a central bank starts to cut, but you know we're into that line, and maybe that aligns with you know the, the inflation comments that, that you guys both brought up then. So um, yeah, we're we're going there, but again, they they've, they've been very clear, and Powell couldn't have been more clear than the, the presser they had at, at their last uh, Fed meeting. You know, he basically said, "You're going to feel pain with your house." valuation you're going to feel pain with your stock portfolio your bond portfolio your bonus from work you know maybe you might lose your job you know some folks might get hurt but we're going to keep raising rates because it's more important than anything to control inflation and again it's irrelevant whether we believe them hiking rates will cause inflation to come down i think you do have other factors at, at work here and uh but the point is that's what they're they're telling you you know that's what they're going to do so can i just add a little piece to that which is that the u.s consumer in my view i know keith might not agree on this but i think the u.s consumer is again the the pivot here is the is the fulcrum on where this all rests on because i think the u.s consumer remains really strong stronger than i think people would have expected with this kind of uh, rate hike and, you know, earlier, Steve, you're saying, you know, a lot of the economic stuff hasn't broken. I would submit to you that that's true. The ISM non-manufacturing survey is still at 57, which is very, which is high. You know, we haven't had any claims data come off, which is the sort of the, the most sensitive labor market data come off. The wage growth is still strong. Jolt's number is still strong. But also, I think there's lots of financial market data that is no, nowhere near broken. If you look at high yield spreads, Yes, the high yield number is high, but the spread over again, which is like the credit spread or the term premium or whatever you want to call it over the treasury bonds is still well within its long-term average. Um, even if you look at, I mean, you know, so if even if even the Italian spreads, which we've talk, talked about a lot, it, yeah, it's up, but it's still below where it was in 2018, 2019, and even 2020. Over the German, it's still only 2.3. The Spanish one is only, you know, 1.17. So, so even though, yes, they're, you know, obviously the UK, something broke there. But as far as the economic data, the consumer data, the labor market data, I mean, things like TED spreads, which I know are no longer popular, but the OIS option adjusted spread, which is the interbank lending numbers are still re relatively tight. High yields, okay. So, I mean, this is... You know, this is the problem with people hoping and praying that the Fed pivot, as Keith laid out, 
I think there's still, there still really hasn't been that much pain. Lastly, I'll even say that there's like, you know, there's high yield and, and investment grade ETFs that people look at as sort of a proxy for, you know, where we're coming and how much we've, and that's only at 2019, 2020 levels. And so we really haven't had that much pain, which is just kind of remarkable. So I think that's, that's it. Yeah, I think it's interesting, Rich, because uh, if, if you chat with the average lad out there on, on the street, you know, they're not, you know, watching podcasts and monitoring markets and stuff like that. And if you said, you're not concerned, but what about, you know, this, this, this and that, you know, they'd look at you like you're crazy. Like, I think, Rich, you said the other day, like, you was it Lisbon? You're, I think you're in, you said, man, it's booming yeah. here, you know, and you're in Halifax, you're walking around, like, it's it's booming, you know, if you go into the city. Same with Toronto, Vancouver, and stuff like that. Uh, but now we were, because remember, the financial world, the one that we're talking about all the time, you know, we're, we're looking into the future all the time, we're pricing risk that may happen or it may not happen and it'll get repriced again but we have uh everyone in the world now is going to get an investment statement coming out for september the 30th and you know most people look at it online all the time or on the phones they can see what they've made and lost but there's going to be a lot of this confidence adjustment it's going to come down so pension funds will have it uh Banks are definitely going to have it because they have AUM and P&Ls they're running. So maybe, again, like I, I'm a bit uh, I'm optimistic for opportunities in the financial markets, but economically, I'm pessimistic. I, I think we're going to start hitting some low confidence numbers coming up. And, you know, again, like I can't get over it. It was the Brits were the ones that experienced the first. And if I had to rank them, I wouldn't even have them on the list, truthfully. I would have said, hey, like they don't qualify, but they did. And that's what's, that's what's so interesting right now. Like all the risk is out there. So the I do believe that. It's a mess, by the way. Apparently, I guess all their lenders are pulling back loans that they were going or promising to make uh, for potential home buyers because, um, you know, obviously they're the volatility in their, in their bond market, right? So, yeah. 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 They have to watch their liquidity, right? They have to watch that. And, uh, but, but with Canada, like I, I'm, I continue to see and expect the, the risk that we have in Canada is, is from outside still. Yeah, if the rest of the world recovers and it never got any worse than this now, even it went sideways for a few years, I think in Canada we'll, we'll manage it. You know, I, I think there will be a little bit of downside in some markets and stuff, but you know, you're not going to get this like epic bank crash and stuff like that. Like we're, we're nowhere in that discussion area I, I do think though that the, the next near-term risk is is going to be italy i am not going to be the least bit surprised if we wake up at any time in the next you know 48 to 72 hours and we discover that you know brussels and frankfurt have decided you know they're going to turn the screws on on the italians so i'm surprised the spreads are so tight actually funnily enough I'm because they'll try they to save the Germans first. Yet. Yeah, yeah. They'll try to save the Germans first, of course. I mean, that, that's what they're doing. But uh, again, because you will get saved. if you, In the EU, if you play the game, then, you know, you're, you're part of the team. <laughs> yeah, we'll, 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 look, we'll look out for you, Rich. You know, we're, we like you. You're one of us. So we actually have a very important question. I want to wrap this show up. Um, but we've got a very important question, actually. 
from one of our listeners, a lot of upvotes on this one. So kind of curious your guys' quick thoughts on this. But, you know, I chat, I basically was based off a tweet where I said, you know, Keith, you know, you had nailed the US dollar wrecking ball uh, call that, again, the US dollar was obviously going to start breaking things. And that other central banks are now having to sort of play catch up uh, just to sort of maintain their, 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 their currencies or try to keep up, so to speak. Uh, so some, so we were asked um, one question that says, I really think you guys need to talk more about the dilemma facing the bank of Canada right now. I'm not sure many Canadians really understand that they have no choice, but to keep pace with the fed, unless we want to see the CAD down, you know, he says 15% in a month, which might be an exaggeration, but uh yeah, that was that was really the, the question is is what's what's your opinion on that, uh, Keith? First and foremost, if you want to take that one, but the basically yeah, the premise is the Bank of Canada having to keep pace with the Fed, otherwise the loony just gets wrecked. Did you want to have a go on that first, Rich, and just sort of rephrase the question so I can? Sure, I can give you I advice this time. So, I mean, there's like something called interest rate parity, which is, I think, what he's like sort of touching on, which is, you know, you, you basically have some kind of parity between your interest rate, long or short term, and your currency. And, you know, and there's like an implied interest rate parity, and then there's a forward, in, there's all kinds of different shit that I forget about and, and that I learned about in the CFA and then have forgotten. And I think this, I, but I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily at play here. I think that it's there's oil at play i think that there's gdp growth and productivity at play um the idea that it's going to collapse 15 percent, i don't necessarily think that's true um just because i think we've already fallen quite quite a lot um but the question really is you know whether or not um canada will have to increase its um target rate to follow the US or suffer from a significantly lower Canadian dollar? I think the easy answer is probably yes. I think the harder answer is that it sort of already has. And um, I think that, I, I, yeah, I guess I don't know. Sorry, I waffled like crazy. Hopefully I bought you enough time, Keith. <laughs> yeah, you did. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Actually, I was, I've been waiting for, I get a weekly delivery of US dollars to my door. So it was just arriving. I had to, had to put it in the, in the back room. What uh, room do you keep it in? <laughs> we call it the, the king dollar room. Yeah. The, uh, so the, the answer to that, uh, because now what I, what I would do is what I think the Bank of Canada is going to do. They are not at that stage where they're trying to match the Americans with rate increases to try to maintain the Canadian dollar at, at, a, at a level. Like, again, from what I hear from the Bank of Canada, they, they are not hitting the panic button. If they are, it, it's on the loan portfolios. It's not on the FX side at all. You know, that, that could absolutely happen at some point. But as you said, Rich, like, you know, Canadian dollar has been one of the best performing across rates over the last year. I think so. You might have CAD, Brazil, Peso. Mexico. Almost, yeah, 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 absolutely. The top three. Um, my concern, so if I'm running like a currency fund of some sort, and I'm not based in Canada, so I don't have any alliance to that. What I would be doing now, I, I'd be, you know, closing the big winners and I'd be allocating so that I am short CAD, you know, Brazil and, and, and peso. 
because those are the ones that have the opportunity, you know, to come down a, a lot harder, you know, if, if we go there and, um, oh, we bought oil this week. Hooray. No, I'm just messing with you. We didn't do it yet. I didn't believe you. I know yeah. it is coming up soon, but that but does another, tie with Canadian dollar, right? So that that's there, something to think about. There's another angle to this, which is kind of more cynical angle, which is 85% of our exports go to, to the US. This obviously includes 97% of all the crude oil we produce because we refuse to build any freaking refineries. We have the same refining capacity that we did 25 years ago, which makes me very angry. But anyways, so the fact that the Canadian dollar goes down a significant amount relative to the US probably makes our manufacturing and service sectors that sell to them significantly more competitive. So it's not necessarily clear that that's an undesirable outcome. Just just saying. <laughs> I don't know. It's I think that's a, so I remember a few months back when you know when CAD was in the 80 cent range and, and I said, you know what, I think we'll see a six number in some of it at, at some point soonish. So here we are now at what, like 73 cents, maybe here right now, 72.90. And um, I, I think we'll get a bounce. I, I think the US dollar has been such, it's been ripping. I, I think you might get a pause here for, for a little bit, uh, but then it will, you know, start going stronger again. But, you know, all these currencies, we can see uh, a, a six number in front of the Canadian dollar pretty soon. And, um, you know, again, like we're headed in that direction. So to sum it up, like real nice and neat, there's a lot of noise this week, you know, with the, with the, with the Bank of England coming out and, you know, rescuing the, the bond market. Um, but like nothing, nothing has changed guys. Nothing has changed for the better here. And so we should prepare, you know, for more opportunities as we like to say in the uh, financial markets. Boom. Hockey season starting. That's good. <laughs> well, I think it's a good place to wrap it up. As always, we appreciate your support. We we ask that you still leave positive reviews for us, despite uh, Arrive Can being shut down. Uh, continue to, to share this episode with at least one friend or family member. But uh, we appreciate your support, as always, and we'll see you next week.